Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. Once every season, the Football Pink podcast pauses to reflect on footballing greatness. In today's episode, we take a run through the Football Pink's greatest stadiums, with some of our writers putting forward a case for their favourite ground to be considered the greatest. Stadiums are the stage on which the great theatre of football plays out, and for many fans they're like a second home. Whether shiny and flashy, or decrepit and full of character, every stadium on today's list has a story to tell. So sit back and let us tell you it. Stadion Feyenoord is, is an example of the, the beauty that can be found beyond the capital. The Avalanche, which is where Bokov's fans rush forward when a goal is scored, has to be seen to be believed. Of course, it helped the fact there was a pub situated at all four corners of the ground, which aided the enjoyment of the match. We start with one of football's best-known stadiums, as Rodney McCain makes a case for Manchester United's Old Trafford, often referred to as the Theatre of Dreams. The media call it the Theatre of Dreams. However, I don't know a single time-served Manchester United fan who would ever call Old Trafford by that name, despite the term first being attributed to one of our greatest ever players, Sir Bobby Charlton, whose name now adorns the former South Stand. The ground has been home to United since 1910, when the club relocated from Bank Street in Clayton, where the fumes and the smoke from the neighbouring factories had been so bad that at times many attributed the club's nickname of the Red Devils to have been coined by supporters who tried to watch the team playing on that pitch, and they felt like they were standing in hell to do so. My first trip to Old Trafford was in 1983, when my father took me along to see us playing Liverpool, who were as seemed to be perpetually the case back then, the league champions. I sat on the south stand that day and watched Ron Atkinson's side beat Liverpool deservedly 1-0, thanks to a goal from Irish hitman Frank Stapleton in front of the famous Stratford End. The stadium has an official capacity of just shy of 76,000, making it the largest club ground in the United Kingdom. It hosted the 2003 Champions League final between AC Milan and Juventus, but it has not had any substantial renovations done to it now in over 20 years, and is considered dated by both pundits and fans alike. Unfortunately, our current owners, the Glazer family, don't really have enough interest in football to change that scenario anytime soon. Though, to be fair to the club, there are rumours of a safe standing section being constructed once COVID-19 is dealt with. And I can tell you that would be very welcome indeed for the fans. When the ground is filled with United fans in full voice, serenading Eric Cantona, Paul Scholes, or currently Bruno Fernandes, there's no better atmosphere in football and there's nowhere else I would rather be. Standing in Old Trafford, singing with Pete Boyle and the guys, can't beat it. Old Trafford, greatest ground in the world for me. (laughs) 
Some Mancunians would argue that Old Trafford isn't even the greatest stadium in Manchester. No, I'm not talking about the space-age contours of the Etihad, but rather the decidedly simpler structure that is Broadhurst Park, home of FC United of Manchester. James Young gives us the lowdown. This is the sound of Broadhurst Park, an act of Mancunian defiance. may not be the most aesthetically pleasing stadium in the world, but it's an important one in today's football society that has been taken over by super agents and billionaires. It continues the attitude that the city of Manchester has of sticking two fingers up at something they don't like. Did Manchester United fans that were unhappy with the Glazer takeover and modern football sit there and moan? No, they started a movement. In the same way that those did during Peterloo and the suffragette movement, they started their own football club and built it from scratch. Broadhurst Park symbolises the attitude and the spirit of Mancunians. It's a place of heritage that should be preserved for when the rest of football decides to sell its soul to a Super League. It's also an integral part of our community and it's not afraid to open its doors to the most vulnerable in society. Whether that's those experiencing homelessness on Christmas Day or refugees, Broadhurst Park is standing there, waving its two fingers at the money-grabbing, sometimes sports-washing experience of football just over a few tram stops away. It's a beautiful sight. Just a few miles along the Manchester Ship Canal lies the other great bastion of football in the northwest of England, Liverpool. The city is the home of current English champions Liverpool FC, and Liam Toher argues that their recently redeveloped Anfield is the greatest. Zero marks for originality, but as a Liverpool supporter, my favourite stadium can only be Anfield. I've been on the cop when it gets going and it's an experience that made the £55 ticket price feel like a comparative 55p. Every time I visit, the communal pre-match performance of Inlever Walk Alone is nothing short of spine-tingling. I love that Anfield has managed to expand in recent years to better cater for the enormous global demand for tickets while remaining in its existing location and retaining the classic feel of a rectangular, four-cornered English football stadium. It's a venue which, for me, has preserved plenty of its time-honoured charm and history, while also modernising sufficiently to provide a welcoming experience for match-going supporters. It hasn't fallen away into decay, nor has it become a soulless venue like some stadia built in the last 20 or 30 years. Even for international Liverpool supporters like me, Anfield feels like a place where all Red fans are made to feel welcome. Matchday staff are genuine, down-to-earth people who want to contribute to a memorable day for supporters and even those conversations with stewards, programme setters and the like make visiting Anfield an experience I wish I could replicate with far greater frequency and some time in the near future.
Across the other side of Stanley Park from Anfield lies Goodison Park, home of Liverpool's derby rivals Everton. Whilst the proximity of these two stadiums is perhaps over-exaggerated by English fans, as any fan of football in Dundee will tell you, Goodison offers a pretty stark contrast to its flashier neighbour. David Nesbitt argues that this throwback is the greatest of them all. One of my favourite stadiums is Goodison Park, home of Everton FC and known as the Grand Old Lady of English Football. First opened in 1892 after Everton left their previous ground, Anfield, on the other side of Stanley Park, Goodison has undergone many changes in its existence and yet has managed to maintain its charm, tradition and uniqueness. The main stand, built in 1971, looks as impressive today as it did almost half a century ago. One of the country's first three-tiered cantered levered stands, it was built at a high cost and for a time cast a significant financial burden on the club. Behind the goals are the Park End and the Gladys Street stands. The Gladys has always had the reputation for housing the more ferocious and hardcore of Everton support, while the Park End is perhaps the one section of the ground that looks poorly planned and less than impressive. Built in 1994, it actually looks like a poor man's cop. The final stand, running the length of the pitch opposite to the main one, is the Bullins Road stand. A traditional stand designed by Archibald Letch, it encompasses the traditions of Everton as a club. Unfortunately, it is now severely dated and large swathes of a Bullins Road offers what can generously be described as restricted viewing. Goodison's days are numbered with a new ground due to be built. And while not even Everton's most ardent fans will argue that it's time to move on, it will nevertheless be a sad day when the gates at Goodison are closed for the last time. While Goodison may not be long for this world, it's very much alive and kicking in comparison to the next stadium on our list, the very recently demolished Griffin Park. Graham Hollingsworth looks back wistfully on Brentford's home of 106 years. So when I moved down to London, my plan was to try and watch matches at as many different grounds as possible. This proved to be a bit tricky for the sides in the Premier League because they make it incredibly difficult for non-season ticket holders to actually get access to tickets. But I still managed at some point to get to most of the grounds. Though what I quickly found was the ones I had less affinity to were the newer, more modern and much larger stadiums, as the way they've been designed means they've been left pretty soulless. Instead, it was the much smaller and intimate grounds I enjoyed visiting the most. Griffin Park, where until this season Brentford played their home games, was my favourite. It only held 13,000, so it was incredibly compact, meaning the atmosphere when the team was doing well was infectious. The lower part of the Brook Road stand where the away fans were situated was all terraced, so for the first time ever we were legally allowed to stand for the entire game. I enjoyed it as it was a complete novelty, but it also really helped to improve the spirit of the game and the mood of the fans crammed in around me. 
What's also great about Griffin Park was that it was in the middle of a housing estate, emphasising its place at the heart of the local community. And of course, it helped the fact there was a pub situated at all four corners of the ground, which aided the enjoyment of the matches I watched, especially when my side, Ipswich, were playing their usual poor brand of football. Sadly, Griffin Park is no longer with us, as the side has moved out to the Brentford Community Stadium, which they will share with the London Irish rugby team. While it makes financial sense, it's a real shame to see such an enjoyably traditional stadium such as Griffin Park no longer fit for purpose. But still, I'll always treasure the matches I saw there. The football pink may have its spiritual home in England, but surely Albion cannot have a complete monopoly on greatness in footballing architecture. Andrew Haynes doesn't think so anyway. He reckons perfection can be found in the ageing imperfection of the Stadion Feyenoord, usually referred to as the Kaup. To choose the greatest stadium of all time it is quite a tricky task. While I almost plump for, for Oldham Athletics Boundary Park, which is my church of choice, one thought of my uncomfortable wooden seat in the main stand-upper halted that thought process. Having done 48 of the 92 Football League and Premier League grounds, I felt that I surely had to choose a stadium which I had been to. However, I couldn't quite bring myself to choose a stadium on the same country soil as my own team. So I decided upon one that's a, that's a short trip across the North Sea. For me, the greatest stadium of all time would need to have character, uh, a long-lasting history, and be one that I've seen with my own eyes. So while the Johan Cruyff Arena came very close, uh, I had to go for Ajax's De Classic Arrivals Stadium, uh, De Kaup, uh, or known properly as Stadion Feyenoord. The stadium is commonly and lovingly known as De Kaup, which in its direct translation to English means the tub for its interesting shape, uh, which almost has supporters feel as though they're on the pitch. With a capacity of just over 51,000, the all-seater stadium is unique in its image, uh, and as football stadiums go, it, it couldn't really be further away from the dreary-looking sort of copy-and-paste modern, modern stadiums that you see. It has history and it, it has a chic style to it, which, which I just love. The Cape's turf as well has been graced by some of Dutch football's greats in, in the classic red, white and black of the club Van Etvork. Ruud Gullit, uh, Robin van Persie and even the great Johan Cruyff in naming uh, just a few of them. Rotterdam as well itself it is, is a real gem of a European city, you know, with so much sort of personality, although it can be a little bit forgotten down in South Holland due to its sort of popular brother up in the north. The same could perhaps be said of the Cape. Johan Cruyff Arena is slick and modern and it's quite the sight to behold, but down in Rotterdam it's, it's that rustic and honest feel of Feyenoord Stadium which tips me in its balance. I think I also naturally have a bit of a soft spot for things which can be forgotten. So while Amsterdam may be the city to catch the international gaze, Stadion Feyenoord is, is an example of the, the beauty that can be found beyond the capital. James Bolum thinks that the world's greatest stadium lies in the Southern Hemisphere, directing us to Buenos Aires, and Boca Juniors' Alberto J. Armando Stadium, more commonly known as La Bombonera. Situated in the La Boca Barrio of Buenos Aires, the birthplace of tango, La Bombonera, home to Boca Juniors, is one of the world's true football temples. The barrio became home to immigrants from Italy, which gave Boca Juniors their nickname, El Genovese. 
and Nabil Malara, well, that's their home. The stadium towers over the pitch, with three tiers on three sides and terracing behind both goals. On the fourth side are executive boxes. This means that fans are close to the players, creating an intimidating atmosphere and giving them a further nickname, the 12th man. The stadium's capacity is set at 49,000, which is too small for Argentina's most popular club, with around 100,000 active members, so plans are currently afoot to increase capacity. The avalanche, which is where Boca's fans rush forward when a goal is scored, has to be seen to be believed. When in full flow, the fans make the stadium shake. Believe me, I've experienced it. I've lived it. Bratin, Batistuta, Raquelme, Palermo, Tevez have all graced the Bombonara pitch. And of course, the incomparable Diego Maradona, Boca's most famous player and supporter. In terms of facilities, La Bombonara can't rival the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or Wembley, but it's said that the people make the place. And if this is true, then Boca's crazy fans in this most iconic of venues makes it the world's best. Diali, Diali, Diala Boca Ali. And as for me, well, I've been lucky enough to visit stadiums in several countries and I've seen a great many that have taken my breath away. Even in my own home country of Scotland, the likes of Hamden, Parkhead and Ibrooks can rival most of the world's great arenas for history and character. Whilst a Scotland versus Nigeria friendly at Craven Cottage in London opened my eyes to the wonders of that nonsensical little ground. But for the greatest, I can't look past Germany a country which seems to do so much right when it comes to supporter experience. And in particular, my pick for greatest stadium is the Stadion an der Alten Forsterei, the home of Union Berlin. The first thing that hits you, even before you get to the Alten Forsterei, is its unique backstory. In the mid-2000s, the stadium was crumbling and in dire need of redevelopment. With Union never having been a rich club and having spent its entire existence to that stage in the lower leagues, their plans to turn their home into a more modern arena were constantly hamstrung by a lack of finances. Eventually, the fans took matters into their own hands, with an army of over 2,000 of them volunteering their services and undertaking the majority of the rebuild, although specialists were still used for some of the more complex tasks. Can you even imagine how strong that feeling of being home, which all of us feel when we're at our club's ground, can you imagine how strong it must be when you've literally built the thing yourself? Even more impressive is the fact that what the Union fans built was a bloody masterpiece. Despite being modern and spacious, the ground feels like a total throwback, with three sides of it taken up by raucous, bouncing terraces of fans. There's a single seated main stand for the Prawn Sandwich Brigade, although it was only half full when I visited and is generally the least sought after area of the stadium. The rest of the fans prefer to stand on the terraces where the match itself is only part of the interest amongst a 90-minute participative demonstration of chanting, singing and choreography. Throw in the guys wandering between the terraces selling beer and baskets of pretzels and you have one hell of a supporter experience. Something that nowhere else I've been has ever quite matched.
And that's it. You've heard the Football Pink's greatest stadiums, ranging from the famous cathedrals of the richest clubs on earth to the more humble homelands of non-league. Everyone has a claim to greatness, and everyone has a story to tell. You might think that we've missed an obvious candidate off the list, but if nothing else, we hope that we've maybe added an extra ground or two to your must-visit list. Happy ground hopping. You have been listening to the Football Pink podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.